Time now for the Brian Barrett Show on EEI. All right, we are with you until midnight. So what do you want to see the Patriots do to help Mac Jones entering his second season as the Patriots quarterback? 617-779-7937 is the number. I do want to touch on this real quickly, and I'll get back to Mac here in a second. But And by the way, if you do want to weigh in on the Hall of Fame stuff, I got into that a lot last night. You can as well. It's 617-779-7937. So this report via The Athletic tonight, Vic Taffer, I believe is how you say his last name, is essentially reporting that Josh McDaniels no longer the front runner for the Raiders job. Here's what he says in his article. Quote, McDaniels apparently had been calling coaches around the league and putting together a staff, but it appears something happened in the last 24 hours. League sources don't know if the issue was about compensation or power structure in Las Vegas or both, but it seems Ziegler and McDaniels are not the leaders in the clubhouse anymore. So this is fascinating to me in terms of what exactly transpired with the Raiders. So there's a couple of possibilities. The first one could be, They soured on McDaniels to the point where they have some other big-name coach, if you will, or big-name coordinator that they're interested in. And they just said, oh, we actually have a better opportunity. Like, they could have gotten to a spot where they thought McDaniels is our best candidate, and then all of a sudden they didn't realize that this guy was interested in the Raiders job. Now, I'm not saying this is the case, but if Brian Dayball said, hey, I'm interested in your job, wouldn't you be more interested in Brian Dayball than you would be with Josh McDaniels? Now, I don't... Assume that's the case. It feels like Dayball's down to the Giants and the Bears. If I was Dayball, I would take the Bears just because I like Justin Fields. But you look at the situation in New York. They came out today and said they are not trading for Deshaun Watson. So that takes them out of at least one guy that could be on the market. Obviously, Aaron Rodgers isn't going there. The one of the guy would be Russell Wilson. I could see Russell Wilson be interested or being interested in going to New York. The problem is he's got nobody to play with there. That team, that team stinks from a weapon perspective, and they have no offensive line. Now, maybe Canarius Tony turns into something with a new head coach, with if that was Brian Dayball, and maybe they get more out of Kenny Galladay, but Galladay essentially gave them nothing last season after signing that big free agent contract in the offseason. So I just don't feel like the Giants' job is very appealing, and the Bears, at least, I feel like there was more upside, significantly more upside with Justin Fields than there is with Daniel Jones, who Daniel Jones has put out there three crappy years in a row. I just don't believe he's a good player whatsoever. But nonetheless, Brian Dable, I feel like he should take one of those two jobs. And if I was him, I would take the Bears job. But what if Jim Harbaugh, all of a sudden, his agent is reaching out to the Raiders like, oh, maybe I'm a little more interested than I originally put out there. How much money are you willing to offer me? So there is that side of it, or there's the McDaniel side of it, where did the Patriots get to Josh? Did the Patriots find a way to remember they convinced him not to go to Indianapolis and they made him the highest paid offensive coordinator in the NFL. They convinced him not to go there. And part of that was, Oh, well, Belichick's going to take him under his wing a little bit more. He's going to teach him stuff from the personnel side of things. Josh is going to be more involved on that side. And basically he's in charge of the offense. We all know that he's running things, but maybe there was a call from the crafts. You're going to be the next guy. We don't know exactly when Bill's going to be done but you're going to be the next guy because this just seems like it's a weird situation. He was putting together his staff and then all of a sudden they said, uh, yeah, um, no, this isn't happening. You and your buddy there, Dave Ziegler, <laughs> you guys aren't the front runners for the job anymore. We don't want you guys. 
it does feel like, from my perspective, it would be on the other side. Something happened with Josh McDaniels and the Patriots, not the other way around. Because it feels like the Raiders were super focused and lasered in on Josh McDaniels from the get-go. So I believe something happened from McDaniels' side. And maybe they tried to lowball him, right? Because they had the whole situation where they gave the huge contract to John Gruden. We know that Mark Davis is not one of the wealthier owners in the NFL. I mean, the guy's done nothing in the league. He got lucky to get that deal in Las Vegas. He's done nothing for the sport. He's basically, I mean, he got the team from his father. It's the only reason he has the team. The guy has basically is looking for a different home for that team for a multitude of years, finally gets one in Las Vegas. They build him this huge stadium, and maybe he looks at it like, oh, I gave John Gruden all this money. He wanted to make the splash with Gruden. And now he's like, yeah, uh, Josh, I'm going to make you one of the lower third paid coaches in the NFL. Maybe that irritated McDaniels. But I feel like it, it's had to have come from the Patriots, that the Patriots said something, whether it be Jonathan or Robert Kraft, somebody said something to Josh McDaniels about his future here. That would be my hunch. That would be my speculation. That would be my guess. Mutt put that theory out there as well earlier. I agree with Mutt's thought process as it pertains to that because if I really try to think through all the elements here as it pertains to the Raiders, I don't see the Raiders being the team that pulled the plug on this when it got out there that they were super laser-focused in on Josh McDaniels, that he was the front runner. So it looks bad for them if they don't get a bigger name than Josh McDaniels at this point because they were putting it out there that Josh McDaniels was going to be the guy. And I really don't believe it'd be the worst thing in the world if the Patriots lost Josh McDaniels and if they could get Bill O'Brien back here because I think a new, fresh set of eyes. Because O'Brien came to the Patriots with his own ideas of what he wanted the offense to be, right? And he put different things into the offense. Remember, O'Brien was really the first guy when he came to the Patriots. One of the things they did was, remember, they were coming off the lockout year. So what they did is they went super up-tempo at the beginning of that season. Remember that? It was like the Patriots playing at warp speed. They were catching everybody off guard. Nobody could keep up with them. That was a Bill O'Brien thing. And then you start to think about the different elements and the different places he's gone. He went to the Texans, and he ran an offense with a lot of RPOs and a lot of play action. He's doing the same thing at Alabama. I feel like something that the Patriots have missed out on, I continue to harp on this, is they don't use a lot of play action, and they don't use RPOs, and that's what Mac Jones is really good at. 52% of his passing attempts last year, RPOs and play action. This year, only 26.1. And if you bring in a guy like Bill O'Brien, you can guarantee that he's going to put a lot of that stuff into the offense because he tends to use it a lot. Not only when he was with the Texans, but he used it at Alabama as well. I don't see what would stop him from using that with Mac Jones. So I don't think that would hurt at all. In fact, I believe that Bill O'Brien would be an upgrade over Josh McDaniels. But I did want to get to this real quickly in terms of the Mac Jones selection and whether or not the Patriots are regretting that decision. So the first thing I'll say is this. It feels like Bill was going to get the quarterback that was closest to being ready to play at the NFL level because of his age, because he's trying to chase down Don Shula. So maybe he was looking at, okay, what's best for me right now rather than what's best for me in 2023 and 2024, right? Like, for example, when the Bills made their draft pick of Josh Allen, they were thinking two, three years down the road, not, hey, what's he going to do as a rookie, right? So one of the things I noticed, though, is I went back to the 2017 draft. If you look at the quarterbacks that have been taken early, I'm not talking about like fifth and sixth round picks, but if you look at the quarterbacks that have been taken in the first round since 2017. So just to run through the list real quickly, Trubisky, Mahomes, Watson, uh, Kaiser was in the second round. Baker, Darnold, Allen, Lamar in 2018. In the 2019 draft, you had Kyler, Daniel Jones, and Dwayne Haskins. In the 2020 draft, 
You had Burrow, Tua, Tua rather, Herbert, and Jordan Love. And then, of course, this past season, you had the five guys that went to the first round, Lawrence, Wilson, Lance, Fields, and Mac Jones. So if you look at the group prior to this year, because obviously the group this year, there's still the jury's still out on those guys. But if you look at that group, a lot of them are the toolsy type of quarterbacks, right? Where these are guys with that are athletic, that have massive arms, that can throw from weird arm angles, they can throw on the move and all that, right? Unlike Mac Jones, where Mac Jones is the more traditional pocket statuesque quarterback. If you look at the guys that have been the toolsy type, Trubisky, Mahomes, Watson, all those guys were considered to be toolsy coming out of the collegiate level. Watson can run all over the place. He can throw on the run. He can do all that stuff. Mahomes had all the crazy arm angles. And Trubisky was considered to be that type of player. Now, obviously, the guy flamed out in Chicago, but he was considered to be the toolsy type. If you look at the 2018 draft, Baker, more traditional, a la Mac Jones. Darnold was considered to be a toolsy type. Allen, toolsy. Obviously, we know Lamar, arguably the greatest running quarterback of all time. So you had that group. Three of the four guys were toolsy. And then you go to 2019. Kyler, obviously, crazy tools, crazy athlete. Daniel Jones, more traditional pocket type, although he does like to run the ball a lot, but he doesn't have a big arm. So I would categorize him as not the toolsy type. You didn't have the super high upside with him. Dwayne Haskins, traditional pocket passer. Burrow, traditional pocket passer. He can move a little bit, but not a great athlete. Two is kind of in his own category. (laughs) He's not traditional and he's not toolsy. He's like the least athletic, athletic quarterback I've ever seen. So he's kind of in his own category. Herbert, obviously, unbelievable tools in terms of the arm strength, the arm angles, the ability to throw on the move. And at six foot five, that guy can flip his hips. Amazing athlete. Jordan Love considered to be toolsy as well. But I mean, we have no idea if he's good or not. So of the regular pocket guys, Baker, Haskins, and Burrow, one of those three has worked out of those quarterbacks that have been drafted. If you look at the toolsy guys, Mahomes hits, Watson hits, Trubisky obviously a big miss, Darnold a miss, and I still can't believe after all that Carolina traded for the guy. Allen's a hit. Lamar, although I worry about him in the postseason at times because we've seen he has the inability to bring you back, he's a hit. You can't say he's not a hit when he's been an MVP of the NFL, and Herbert's a hit, right? Love TBD. We have no clue about love. So out of the toolsy guys, four out of those six guys have hit. And you think about this year's draft. Lawrence goes one in that toolsy mode. Wilson goes two in the toolsy mode. Lance goes third in the toolsy mode. Fields goes fourth in the toolsy mode. And Mac Jones, of course, the more traditional, prototypical, old-school quarterback, if you will. And I really start to wonder about the Fields thing. Because... Obviously, Mac's never going to be linked to Lawrence. He's never going to be linked to Wilson. And quite frankly, he's not even going to be linked to Trey Lance. The guy that he will be linked to here locally is Fields because the Patriots, if they wanted to, could have traded up for Fields. Because remember, the Chicago Bears leaped up from the 20s to take that pick from the Giants. So if the Patriots really liked Fields, they could have jumped up. And if you look at Josh Allen, how much he struggled his first two years, Fields is similar this year. The pass and efficiency was not there whatsoever. But you did see a lot of flashes with Fields. And you did see that ability to pick up plays with his legs. And the other thing you saw about Fields is just the arm strength. 7.4 air yards per completion. That led the NFL. So Mac Jones is going to come into the league. He was going to be more polished. But you just wonder, like, Josh Allen, that pick that the Bills made, if it hit, it was going to be amazing, right? Where... He has a super strong arm. He can run the ball. He can make all the throws. He's going to be able to play in bad weather and all that different type of stuff. And he had that unbelievable size at 6'5". He's like 230 pounds. 
if it all worked out, he was going to be one of the best players in the NFL. If it didn't, it was going to be a disaster. And for two years, it sort of looked that way. He was not good his first two years in the NFL. And that constant work with Dayball, the RPO game, the play-action game, he became one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And I kind of feel that way with Fields. If it all works out with Fields, and look, you're a long way from getting there. But if we look up in 2023 and 2024 and Fields has maybe Brian Dayball as his head coach. Maybe Brian Dayball develops him the way that he developed Josh Allen. I wonder if we look back to that draft and say the Patriots are looking too much in the near term instead of the future. And the future was Fields and not Mac Jones. All right, 617-779-7937 is the number. Brian Barrett with you up until midnight. A lot more to get into, including this. There is one thing that's been thrown out there about Mac Jones that people are criticizing him for, which I think is completely unfair. We'll get to that next here on EEI. We're right back to what you want to hear. More of Brian Barrett on EEI. First, do you have any appraisal at all of the arm strength that you see from your couch of Mac Jones? Yeah, from my standpoint, it's adequate. He hasn't got the same kind of arm that the kid with the Chargers has. It's functional. He can get he can get the throws done. From my observation, from a pure mechanical delivery, he's very efficient. He's very accurate. And if I had maybe one assessment, he may not be able to throw the the deep route consistently, but he can throw enough deep to make it be effective Mm -hmm. around all the other things that Coach Belichick and his staff have him do. All right, if you don't recognize the voice, that is the great Tom House, who, of course, is Coach Tom Brady. He's been his quarterback's coach for a while, coached a bunch of other guys as well, the Drew Breeses of the world. So he was weighing in on Mac Jones, talking about the arm strength, comparing him to the kid with the Chargers, who, of course, he means Justin Herbert. But, by the way, fun fact on Tom House, you know that he caught Hank Aaron's 715th home run? He's the guy in the bullpen that caught it, Tom House. He was a bullpen pitcher at the time. And he caught the ball that Hank Aaron had out of the park. But he's been working as a quarterback's coach for a while. And he references Mac Jones' arm strength. So do you believe that Mac Jones is going to improve as it pertains to his arm strength? 617-779-7937 is the number. Because that's been a big topic of conversation here locally is, hey, can Mac improve from a physicality standpoint? Not just the arm strength, but can he get in better shape and all that different type of stuff? I imagine he's going to get into better physical shape. But I also believe that arm strength is not something that you can't get better with. You can't improve your arm strength. That's ridiculous. He hasn't even grown into his full body yet. He's 23 years old. And I came across this. So this is from Ben Baby from ESPN.com. Ben Baby. He covers the Cincinnati Bengals. This was his article prior to the season. Quote, the ball looked faster coming out of his hand. Talking about Joe Burrow receivers struggled to haul in his passes arriving quicker than they expected. And one even put his gloves back on during the middle of drills. Tyler Boyd on Joe Burrow's new arm strength coming into training camp. Hands were stinging a little bit out there. Baby went on to say the extra zip was a culmination of months of hard work for Burrow, who had dedicated the offseason to two primary goals. Rehabbing multiple torn ligaments after the knee injury ended his rookie season in November and improving his stance and throwing motion. The latter led to an increase in velocity that will help Cincinnati unlock its deep passing game. So they had to work on his motion in the offseason. Now, Jordan Palmer 
is his quarterback's coach. Now, I would love Mac to work with Jordan Palmer because he coaches all these good quarterbacks. He coaches the Josh Allens of the world. Okay, so if I was Mac Jones, I would call up Jordan Palmer this offseason. Of course, Carson Palmer's brother. Now, Jordan Palmer said this. When you get a player who increases velocity, velocity is not the only byproduct. Confidence starts to get affected. Certain types of throws that they can make now start to get affected. Baby went on to say in his article, Burrow had a tendency of throwing from his toes and slightly lifting his feet off the ground. So he worked with Palmer to keep his cleats planted, which Burrow said allows him to generate more torque and power through his core, which eventually travels upward to the arm on throws. In the offseason, his velocity, Joe Burrow's, went from 48.5 miles an hour to 54, okay? Joe Burrow even said, it's always been a knock on me for some reason, no matter how I played, talking about his arm strength. So Joe Burrow, last offseason, of course, he's recovering from the torn ACL, but the other big thing he was doing is he was finding a way to improve his arm strength. And remember, coming out of the collegiate level, he was considered to have a slightly above-average arm, much like Mac Jones. And Joe Burrow found a way to improve his arm strength by working with his personal quarterback, Jordan Palmer. And they just went through them saying some things from a mechanical standpoint. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be Jordan Palmer and know exactly what's wrong with Mac Jones's throwing motion or anything along those lines. Heck, there may not be something wrong with it, but there may be tweaks that Mac Jones can make to his throwing motion that helps increase his arm strength. So this whole idea that Mac cannot get better in terms of his arm strength this offseason that's complete hogwash. We just legitimately saw it happen with Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow couldn't complete a pass over 20 yards last season. He completed just 21%. This year, he was fourth in the NFL with 60 completed passes over 20 yards. So he went from being somebody that couldn't throw the ball down the field whatsoever to save his life to a guy that was one of the most devastating down-the-field throwers in the NFL last season. And you look at him in terms of the trajectory Mac Jones, if you get him weapons, like Joe Burrow just recently got weapons, maybe you see those numbers even increase with Mac Jones in his second season. But I just think from a Patriots perspective, it is somewhat gratifying to know that there is a recent example of a guy that needed to work on his arm strength, had to improve on his arm strength. He went back and he worked with his quarterback's coach in the offseason, and he improved the arm strength. So this idea that your arm strength can't get better, I don't know where people are getting this from. And it has been a legitimate narrative here over the past couple of days. I heard Andy Hart, my buddy, talking to Mud about it tonight, and he doesn't buy into it. He doesn't believe you can improve your arm strength. Well, how do you explain Joe Burrow? Joe Burrow couldn't throw the ball down the field, and now Joe Burrow is throwing the ball down the field left and right. Now, part of that is the weaponry he's added, but we've advocated all night that Mac Jones, you got to add some weapons to the offense for Mac Jones to be able to throw the football to. So when you look at it from that perspective, I, I feel like all this stuff that we've seen from Joe Burrow over the past couple of weeks, it should make Patriots fans feel good. And in particular, this whole idea that Max arm can improve, certainly you need to see it improve. Now, Burrow is never going to have one of the best arms in the NFL. But one of the things he does really well, those deep outs that he throws, like when you look at Herbert, I, he, that guy's got a rocket, right? Mahomes, rocket, Allen, rocket. But what Joe Burrow does so well is very similar to what Drew Brees did so well. He throws with incredible anticipation. He's an anticipatory passer, which is clearly what Mac Jones is going to have to be. He's never going to be the Mahomes-Josh Allen type, but he can be the Drew Brees type where he can anticipate well 
and knows where everybody's going to be on the football field. So I just feel much better about Mac Jones and his arm strength, considering we have a recent example of a guy that just did it last year with a torn ACL. So Mac Jones doesn't even have to deal with a torn ACL, rehabbing from a torn ACL. And actually, I think he had a torn ACL and a torn MCL. He doesn't have to deal with all that crap. He's just got to get out on the field and play. All right. So if you want to weigh in on that, Mac Jones, do you think he'll improve as a passer? And what do the Patriots need to do to help Mac Jones this offseason in terms of making this offense more potent coming up in 2022? 617-779-7937 is the number. I do feel like also McDaniels, they got to find a way. If McDaniels is back and it looks this way based on the reporting from Las Vegas that the Raiders are basically saying he's not their leading candidate anymore after he was. It felt like that was signed, sealed, and delivered. It was just going to be a matter of when Josh McDaniels was going to sign on the dotted line. But, I mean, I, I don't. maybe I shouldn't say this, but I don't feel bad for Josh McDaniels that this is happening because he left the Colts at the altar, and now a team that he thought, okay, for sure I'm getting this gig, is saying, yeah, we're good, Josh. I really can't feel bad for him. I can't have any level of empathy for Josh McDaniels if that's the case. If the Raiders just say, yeah, you're not the perfect candidate. I don't feel bad for him whatsoever because he did this to the Indianapolis Colts. And quite frankly, I still can't understand why Colts fans are so mad about that. Still to this day, like you got Frank Reich. Frank Reich is a good coach. No doubt about that. He's a really good coach. And unfortunately for him, it just went south because... Andrew Luck decided all of a sudden that he was going to retire. And they've been searching for a quarterback ever since. Remember the first year, they're like, all right, let's see what we can do with Jacoby Brissett. The next year, they go for old man Phillip Rivers. And then this past season, Carson Wentz goes in there. And everyone thinks, oh, Carson Wentz is going to turn around. Eh, not so much. He didn't really turn around. Oh, I did want to mention this real quickly, though. Because we don't know the decision on Tom Brady yet. And when you heard what he said the other day, it feels like the Tom Brady decision is going to come down to, can I convince Giselle to let me play again? And maybe there's issues there. And look, they're going to lose some guys in terms of, it appears that Byron Leftwich is going to get that job as the offensive coordinator of the Bucs. He's going to be going to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Apparently they met for four to five hours today. Not official yet, but it feels like he's going to get that job. Be a good story for the Jaguars, the guy that once played quarterback for them eventually becoming their head coach. So they're going to lose the OC. We'll see what happens with Gronk. If Brady's back, I would assume Gronk's going to be back. Godwin, I don't know about him because he's coming off a torn ACL. He was playing on the franchise tag. You would assume that he wants to go out there and get paid. So the team could look a little bit different next season. But I believe Brady's going to come back if Giselle gives him the permission. And I feel like that's when he kept alluding to the family stuff the other day. Oh, but this is what I want to mention about Brady. So let's say this is, hypothetically, and I hope it's not, Let's hope that it's not the last season for Brady because he's too good to retire at this particular point in time. And I do like the whole, I'm not saying it's much of a debate right now, but the whole Brady-Belichick thing, I like weighing in on that every week and just seeing where each team is. But So let's say this is it for Tom. So in his last season, he would have averaged 312 yards per game, led the league, 102.1 passer rating, 43 touchdowns, led the league. He completed 67.5% of his passes. So I was going through this today in terms of quarterbacks in their final season, like the best final seasons for quarterbacks in NFL history. So the best one I could find was Andrew Luck. But remember, Tom Brady just did this at 44. Andrew Luck's final season in the NFL, he was 29 years old. So he wasn't even 30. So Andrew Luck, his final season, 67.3 completion percentage, which is just a tad below Brady at 67.5. 
You look at the yards per game, Luck was at 287.1. Brady was at 312.7, so way higher for Brady. Brady had a 102.1 quarterback rating, as we mentioned. Luck, under that by about four points, he was at 98.7. And then, I don't want to give you the... Well, if you look at the touchdowns, too, Luck had 39. Brady had 43. Now, obviously, Brady played in an extra game, but if you look at the touchdown percentage, it was at... 6%, and if you look at the touchdown percentage for Luck that season, a little lower than that. So when you look at all those things in terms of the best quarterback in his final season was 29 and Andrew Luck, and Tom Brady will be retiring at the age of 44 if he does it, and he would have had a better season than the guy that retired at 29. Another close one would be like Phillip Rivers. So Phillip Rivers last year completed 68% of his passes, obviously better than Brady. But 200, just 260 yards per game, 24 TDs compared to 11 interceptions. The rating was at 97, so Brady was way better. Kurt Warner was actually pretty good in his final season as well, remember, with the Cardinals, because he kind of, Warner had such an unbelievable career. I, I never saw that movie. It didn't look good, so I, I didn't watch it. But obviously we all know the story about him bagging groceries. Then he goes to the Rams, and Trent Green gets hurt. He takes over the job there. He becomes an MVP there. They won a Super Bowl. They go back to another one. Of course, they lose to the Patriots. And then it's kind of like, well, he's done. He loses his job to Mark Bolger and then eventually gets on with the Giants. But then he knows he's just kind of a place sitter there, a place sitter there because Eli Manning is going to take over. So it appears he's done again. He goes to Arizona, and that's going to be Matt Leinart's team. And then Matt Leinart sucks. It's like, okay, let's give it back to Kurt Warner. And he goes back to another Super Bowl, and he almost won it against Ben Roethlisberger. And the Steelers, remember, Larry Fitzgerald had that late touchdown. And if it isn't for Ben coming down the field and hitting Santonio Holmes, Kurt Warner's a two-time Super Bowl champ. But anyway, Kurt Warner's final season at the NFL, he was pretty good as well. He And remember, oh, man, he did he get beat up in that particular postseason? Remember that game that they had against the Saints? Remember, he was part of the whole, I was going to say Spygate, but he was part of the whole Bounty Gate thing where – Kurt Warner, they had a bounty on Kurt Warner in his final season there. But anyway, so his final year at the age of 38, so Brady's, of course, at 44. He completes 66.1% of his passes, 250 yards per game, 93.2 rating. So, man, this is crazy. So Warner had a great season at 38. Rivers had a great season at 38. Luck had a great season at 29. Brady is significantly better if you look at his season totals and his season statistics than all those guys at the age of 44. It's just remarkable to think about. Like, if this is it for Tom, it wouldn't, wouldn't really be one of those things where he went out in some sort of ugly fashion, a la Peyton Manning. Like, Peyton Manning went out, he won the Super Bowl. I get all that. But at one point in that season, he was benched for Brock Osweiler. And eventually they gave him the job back, and it was just because Osweiler kept throwing interceptions. Like, I understand they hid behind the injury thing with Peyton midway through that season, but the real reason they did that is because Peyton Manning couldn't throw the ball. Remember, he could barely throw the ball 15 yards in the air, and I'm not even really exaggerating. He had all these issues with his nerves, et cetera. But all these guys at the end of their career, with the exception of the guys I mentioned. Now, I can't go back to the Roger Staubachs of the world, et cetera. I wasn't alive. But Rivers, based on the numbers, yeah, they look okay. He did not look great last year. Did anybody think Rivers looked great? Luck did look great his final season, but and that was just starting with Frank Reich. I felt like the Colts were on something with Luck and Reich, and they went to the playoffs. Now they lost to the Chiefs in 2018, but he felt like, all right, they're building something. They finally got him an offensive line after not having one for a while. But Warner looked good in his last season. But think about all these other guys. Favre was horrible and injured. Peyton Manning was horrible and injured. 
Most of these guys do not go out in a high note. Brady would still at least go out in the note where, yeah, he played at a high level. And I don't see next year him coming back and that not being the same thing. So I don't think he's in danger of that whatsoever. I think it's more a decision more so on what the family wants him to do. I don't think he's lying when he does that podcast with Jim Gray and alludes to, well, now it's going to be a family decision. So maybe the agreement with Giselle was, all right, I need to prove that I can win without Bill or I need to prove I can play at a high level without Bill. Let me go to Tampa for two years, and after the two years, if I win a Super Bowl, I'll retire. And he already won the Super Bowl, so she gave him the extra year, and maybe it's just like Giselle says, hey, Tom, time to do some more stuff at home, man. We need you home. We need you to retire. Maybe that's what happens as it pertains to Brady. I do want to get to some Celtics real quick. By the way, 617-779-7937, the number, if you want to weigh in on what you want to see the Patriots do this offseason to help Mac Jones, that's on the table. But I want to touch on the Celtics real quickly here because – they are playing some of the best basketball that we've seen them play all season long. And one of the big reasons for that is, this is crazy, they're hitting shots. So if you look at it, through the end of December, the Celtics had a 0.8 net rating. That was 11th in the NBA. The issue was their offense, right? Their defense has been top 10 in the league for the majority of the season. But you look at their offensive rating from the beginning of the year to the end of December, just 108.3, so 20th in the NBA. Horrible. You look at the Celtics this month, a 112.7 offensive rating. So if you look at that offensive rating, it increases by more than four points per 100 possessions. The big reason for that, they're actually starting to hit their shots, as we alluded to. You look at this month, they're hitting 37.1% of their threes. And that's with a couple of really bad games mixed in there. That's fourth in the NBA. Prior to this month, they were shooting not great from three at all. In fact, they were shooting 33.3%, which is 24th in the NBA. So their three-point percentage is up nearly 4% in January from when it was from October until the end of December. You look at corner threes in particular, they were shooting well at the beginning of the year or for the majority of the year as well, but they're still shooting over 38% from corner threes. That's sixth in the NBA this month. Now, above-the-break threes are the big difference here. 37% on above-the-break threes since the start of January. That's fifth in the NBA. Prior to January, they're shooting just 32.7% from above-the-break threes. That's 22nd in the NBA. And the big thing here is you have more Tatum, Jalen, and Robert Williams minutes. And that lineup for the Celtics has been pretty much devastating all season long when those guys are together on the court, but it's even been better in the month of January. So if you look at it, when Robert Williams and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are on the court together in January, they've played 223 minutes. During that stretch, they've posted a 17.9 rating. So that means they're outscoring their opponents per 100 possessions by almost 18 points when those three guys are on the court together. Doesn't matter who the other two guys are. When those three guys are on the court together, they're outscoring their opponents by nearly 18 points per 100 possessions. That's the best for any trio in the NBA this month that has played at least 200 minutes together. So that three-man unit works. Those three guys together work. And by the way, their starting lineup has been really good all season long. 21.9 net rating. The problem is they've only played 174 minutes together. But we know that the Jalen, Tatum, and Robert Williams lineup, that works together. The question is, what does Brad Stevens do at the trading deadline to help give those guys more help if they try to make a run in the postseason. I'm not saying they're title contenders or anything along those lines, but what can Brad do at the deadline to help those three players? I'll tell you next right here on WEI. We're right back to it. This is Brian Barrett on EEI. I love when Rob playing. 
Like I, I, I obviously, if you know myself and JB out, you know other guys got to step up. But like, I just love when Rob play. What do you love so much about? Uh, I mean everything. He's a if you, if you drive in the traffic and you ain't got to kick out, you can just throw it to the sky and Rob will catch it. You can pressure the ball a little bit more because you know if you get beat, you know he's back there to protect you. Um, and he's just a lot more vocal now than previous years. And he's just always active. I mean, he has 17 rebounds a night. All right, there's Jason Tatum talking about Robert Williams. <laughs> like the song, too. And it is true what he's talking about. You can tell there is a different energy with both Jalen Brown and with Jason Tatum when they're on the floor with this guy. Because really, if you think about it, since they came into the NBA, obviously this is by far Robert Williams' best season. But if you really think about it, since these two guys came into the league, they were playing with more ground-bound centers. Now, obviously... Daniel Tice had a little more hop at his step than did Al Horford in terms of when they were playing with Al Horford before he went to Philly. And now, of course, Al Horford, I mean, I don't know if he can jump. But I look, Horford's had a good year. I'm not, this is not meant to be like an indictment or I'm not trying to be overly critical of Horford because I think he's played pretty well this season for the most part. Way better than I thought he would. He's been really good defensively. He helps you offensively because he moves the ball. He's not shot as well as you'd like him to shoot the ball. But I think he's had a pretty good season in terms of what you expected and what he's actually giving you. He's exceeded my expectations by a lot. But that element of having a center that puts pressure on the rim vertically, right? Because if you think about it, when James Harden was in Houston and after they moved on from Chris Paul, it was basically... Him and Clint Capella for a year. Now, eventually, they'd add Russell Westbrook. That did not work out for them, and they moved on from Clint Capella because they couldn't have, essentially, two guys that shot like centers. Clint Capella and Russell Westbrook shoots like a center. But that one year where those guys were working together in pick-and-roll situations, and Clint Capella was finishing at the basket, and he made up for Harden on the defensive side of the ball as well because if you look at Harden from a defensive perspective, he's just not consistent whatsoever and, quite frankly, doesn't really care And when you have a guy on the back end like Clint Capella, who people had in the conversation last year in the defensive player of the year conversation, it just makes up for issues you have defensively. And we do see that to a certain extent with Robert Williams. Now, I do think sometimes, and I'm not going to be overly critical of Williams either, I think sometimes you get into a situation where he tries to block every shot and he gets out of position. But for the most part, he brings a totally different element to what you do offensively because he puts pressure on the rim. Horford does not put pressure on the rim whatsoever. More of a pick-and-pop guy at this particular point in time. So when he's coming off the screen that he sets for Tatum and Brown, he's rolling right to the rim. So it makes life a lot easier for Tatum and Brown because they're not going to get double-teamed when they go in there. And if they do, it gives you a really easy opportunity to just lob one up to Robert Williams. Now, the one other thing I'd mention real quickly here is just going forward in terms of the moves. Now, I've already suggested the big moves the Celtics can make. I'd love them to go after Jeremy Grant. I feel like there's going to be a big-time market for Grant out there. I wouldn't mind a shot on a guy like Buddy Heald. I know he sucked. The whole Sacramento Kings sucked the other night against the Celtics. But I wouldn't mind getting another shooter in here, a guy that lifetime shoots about 39% from three-point territory. Now, he is a chucker. Granted, he is a chucker. And he could aggravate some of these guys. But it'd be nice to have a guy like that in the corner or somebody that can shoot on the move, right? The Celtics don't really have that guy that can shoot on the move. I'm not even talking about like elite level J.J. Redick back in the day, but they don't even have like a Wayne Ellington type that can shoot off the move. And certainly we know that 
Buddy Heald can do that. Now, maybe he shoots a little bit too much, but Heald can certainly do that. I would have liked to see a John Collins thing, but it doesn't appear that's going to happen anyway because I feel like Collins would fit in with Tatum and Brown as well because really good shooter for his size. But here's a more realistic trade that you may be hearing in the next couple of days, and maybe this offends Marcus Smart fans, but a swap, and Danny Ainge has already been looking around searching for perimeter defenders because the Utah Jazz, they're – Eighth, I believe, right now, or 11th, actually, in defense, which is stunning because they have Rudy Gobert. The problem is their perimeter defense is Angel Food Cake. They're actually dead last in the NBA in steals per game. So Danny Ainge is calling around, and one of the guys he's interested in, apparently, is Marcus Smart. So what would a Marcus Smart to Utah deal look like? And I would do it because what I've seen from Smart this year, I'm not telling you he's not a really good defender anymore. He is. But he doesn't have that same level of athleticism that he's had before. And he tends to clash with Jalen Brown more so than Jason Tatum. But still, he tends to crash with Jalen Brown. They've had issues in the past. He called out the guys this year. It just It's not going to be a long-term fit with Tatum Brown and with Marcus Smart. So if you look at Marcus Smart and if you look at what you could get from him, I think what you would have to ask for, because the contracts are very similar. Joe Ingles would be the piece coming back to the Celtics. Marcus Smart, about a $13 million cap. But remember, this is the last year before his extension kicks in. Joe Ingles is at 12.4 in base salary. And Smart definitely helps Utah because he gives them that perimeter defender that they need. Royce O'Neal's a good defender, but they don't really have great defenders at the guard position. Not that Conley's bad, but he's aging. And Donovan Mitchell has never been a great defender. And Smart would instantly help them from a defensive perspective. But you swap those, and then his extension kicks in next year. And then on top of that, if you're the Celtics... If you're going to get Ingles back for Smart, you would need to get a first-round draft pick as well. And just go from there, a guy in Ingles who's on an expiring contract, and getting rid of Smart's contract would help you in the future in terms of flexibility. And if you look at Ingles this season, he has not shot the ball particularly well. He's shooting just about 35% from three. But in his career, he's been a really consistent three-point shooter. You look at last year, he shot 44% on above-the-break threes, second among players that took four a game, 47.4% on corner threes, and he shot 45.1% last year from three in general. That's fifth in the NBA on 6.1 attempts. He can create a little bit for you off the bounce. We know he can shoot the three, career 40% three-point shooter, and he pisses guys off all the time. He pissed off a guy like Paul George. So, yeah, you'd be losing Marcus Smart, but you'd still have the guy that pissed off the opponent you're not winning a championship with Smart this year. I don't believe he's a long-term fit around Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. We've seen too many things that tell us that those guys are just not going to work long-term. So, quite frankly, get a guy that's a more offensive-minded player that can shoot around Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and get a first-round pick and get out from under the Marcus Smart contract. I'd do that if I was the Celtics. All right, thanks to Justin for producing. I'm back with you tomorrow. Have a great night, everybody. Be safe and be well.